This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Maggie McNabb about what designers can take from nature and what they can give back. We've got this opportunity to make real in the world what we see our world being. And design is like a step towards that because that's really the act of imagining, creating, visioning, and putting it into the world as a real thing. Here's Debbie Millman. The exact moment when Maggie McNabb fell in love with nature is not certain. Maybe it was on horseback somewhere in her home state of New Mexico. Maybe it was when she was nine years old, looking into a microscope. But whenever it was, the love was for real and for keeps. In 1981, Maggie opened McNabb Design and began creating symbols, visual metaphors, and conceptual design for a wide range of clientele. Her designs use nature's ways of communicating straight to our animal selves. And now, with her two books, Decoding Design and Design by Nature, she's helping the rest of us to do the same. Maggie McNabb, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. It's great to be here. So, Maggie, is it true that when you were 18 years old, you pasted up a 300-plus page book by hand titled The Improbable Rise of Redneck Rock? True. That is true, except I think I was probably 17. Okay. And I was traversing, you know, two technologies, the industrial age going into the information age, which evolved into the digital and uh, I clipped off the tip of my middle finger with an X-Acto knife. So I very clearly remember pasting up that book. How on earth did you get a job to paste up a 300-plus page book about redneck rock? Well, it actually started several months before that when I was 16. I left high school a year early. I needed one credit to graduate, and I knew that I would not go to another year of public school for one credit. So I simply left high school a year early and got into the work market. I lied about my age. I said I was 18. And I got a job at Coal Type Services of New Mexico, which was a carbon-based typesetting company, back when everything was segregated. And um, I spent about probably four months or so there, and then I decided I wanted to move to Austin. And uh, I had enough experience that I was able to get a job at Nelson Typesetters, who had the pro- they had hot type still. They had hot type and the first one of the first Compu graphics. So that was paper punch tape that actually put out output galleys. And uh, so I got experience with all of the technical end. I never actually went to school for design. I learned more of the aesthetics of design after I had a solid base under me of how to do it, how to make it happen, how to execute. So I understand that back then you naively had the idea that commercial art would entail drawing all day. <laughs> I did think that, yes. You know, and I, my background was drawing, and that's what I love to do. And um, I thought about medical drawing. That was one thing I looked into to go into as a profession. My parents knew a lot of starving artists in Santa Fe when I was a kid growing up, and I knew I did not want to be a starving artist, but I also knew that I really wanted to do something that was creative and had to do with art. And it was just a segue into design, which was called commercial art back in the 70s. So you grew up in New Mexico, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, with your parents, Sandy, an architect with John Gaumem, and Arden, a poet 
and writing teacher at the Institute of American Indian Arts. And you've said quite publicly that your father was not only your dad, but he was also your mentor, and that he first piqued your interest in nature when he gave you a microscope with which to see the invisible. Yeah. And along with that microscope, I think it was the same Christmas, I also got an invisible woman that you could disassemble from the skin layer down to the muscles, to the organs, to the bones. And so one of the first things we did with that microscope was go collect pond water. This is back in the mid-60s. Uh, in the area of Santa Fe, north of Santa Fe, and brought back this little vial of water, put it into the microscope between a couple of slides, and there were all of these things moving around in there. And, um, you know, that's when I first got the idea that, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things around us all of the time that are interacting with us that we have no clue that's going on. And I found that infinitely fascinating. Would you say that this was also when your interest in mythology began? No, it was earlier than that. My father read science fiction to me as a kid, which was kind of odd, you know, mostly short stories. but um, As bedtime stories, I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, Alice in Wonderland and um, my parents... I don't know. They just they had a very open and receptive idea to all of that. And they were always with artists as far back as I can remember. They went down to Mexico City before I was born and actually met Diego Rivera at a party down there. So they were always in that kind of um, milieu of people. So when did you realize that you wanted to really pursue design as a profession and not just be a commercial artist in a type shop? That would have also been in Austin. I spent that five-year period between um, 73 and 78 down there, and that really was my formative years. And at first, I worked for typesetters and small printers, which gave me that foundation I needed. And then I went into an ad agency um, that taught me the finer points like Visual Center, and that's when I got into uh, CA design annuals, fell in love with Woody Pirtle's work, and... uh, I think something about being so mythologically oriented and symbolically oriented just connected with me in the logo realm. And that's sort of where my breakout was in logos and what I've always loved to do the most, though I've in 30 plus years done just about everything. But I really love refining the information down to the essence, what communicates the best. So the the logos that you've created and many of the logos that you're known for are highly symbolic. What is it about symbols that you find so fascinating? Well, they connect to the eternal. I think that is the thing that, uh, you know, I kind of see culture as a veneer over things. And I'm really interested in what the essential is, the the life force, sort of the energy of something that lives at its you know, in the lowest chakra, for instance, you know, what is that thing? And how do you connect to it? How do you filter through all of the stuff on the top and find an essence? Symbols just have a tendency to clearly connect. It doesn't matter what culture it is. It doesn't matter what era it is. It connects with essential information that is eternal, always true, not factual. Facts are different. Facts are something human beings do. This is a universal truth. And that's why I think they're so wonderful, because we can't we can't mess with them. You've written that humans have often been called the symbolizing animal. We use words, number, shape, and other deduced imagery to give context to the intangible. This is how we transport and anchor the imagination. Maggie, how do we do that? How does that happen? 
that's kind of a tough one, and I think everybody's process is probably pretty individual. But um, what I teach is going in to connect with that part in yourself and looking at the most essential shapes, the most essential patterns, and what is actually energetically happening with that. And I don't mean in the woo-woo context of energy. I mean, I'm talking about what's doing the work in the universe. And, you know, why does a spiral look like that? Why does a hexagon in a beehive? Um, Those kinds of things. And why those shapes are exactly perfect for the kind of work they're doing and how they not only connect to structural space, but how they connect to personality types, how they dimensionally connect with from the zero to fourth dimension, and how they, they work at all different levels and remain consistent throughout. So why does a spiral look like a spiral, and why does a hexagon look like a hexagon? Well, a spiral is actually, if you look at, for instance, a a phi, a logarithmic spiral, which is that geometrically progressed spiral that grows as it goes outward, if you look at how it's actually constructed when you create a golden mean rectangle, what's actually happening is in it's kind of this is one of those things that I really wish I had a whiteboard behind me so I could show it while I was talking about it. But it's actually you take the center point of each of the places where the squares are connecting or the the shapes that actually build in a spiral. There, these rectangles are actually going around in a spiral, and you find with a compass you stretch it out to the width of each box dimension. And then at the points at which those circles touch each other, where they overlap, is where you connect into the next dimension or the next range of larger circle, and you connect all of these together. So the spiral is actually a shape of creativity. I mean, a lot of my students in um, design class, we do the shapes test, and a lot of them choose the spiral as their favorite out of five um, archetypal shapes. And of course they would because that's got their focus right now. That's what they're doing in their lives is learning about how to be creative in the world in a practical way. And um, so it's the energy of also regeneration. Each of the circles are a whole and singular entity. Circles are the shape of wholeness. And at each point of these pieces of wholeness touching one another, coming into contact with one another, they create something new. And it actually, it's the same shape being repeated but out into different spaces. It's almost like a generational kind of a thing. So it's regeneration and creativity for the spiral. Hexagon is um, actually the shape that a circle takes on when it's introduced into three-dimensional space with gravity and um, heat and all of the things that we have in three-dimensional space where the the little triangular points of where you have six circles around a single circle collapse, and that forms the shape of a hexagon. It's a very compact, very stable space. So this is a space of storage. It's a perfect shape for storage. Stacking and packing. Stacking and packing. (laughs) Um, For our listeners that, that haven't read your books yet, what is stacking and packing? Stacking and packing is um, a very effective way to store energy in a very accessible way, but also keeping it out of out of the way, keeping it secure until it's needed. So stacking and packing is the shape the hexagon takes on. The, the bee chooses it because it's one of those shapes that tessellate in two-dimensional space. There's only three out of the shapes. The hexagon is one. Uh, triangles are another, and squares are the other. You can just imagine them translating across a page, one after another, and no spaces, no gaps. A tessellation is a perfectly fitting shape. And um, so it's very economical. There's nothing to collapse. There's nothing impeding something else next to it. So it's very, very secure and very tight. 
You've written about how recognizing patterns is one of humanity's greatest abilities. And you go on to say that all human beings understand certain shapes and certain patterns. And I'm wondering how that is possible. Are we born that way? When do we begin to understand these innate shapes and patterns? Well, we are those patterns. I mean, from the double helix to the unfurling of an embryo in a spiral shape, we embody all of these shapes. And, you know, I believe there are certain parts of our conscious and subconscious that do communicate with each other, although we don't always bring it up to the head level. And I think that studying these kinds of things and really looking at the patterns and understanding why a certain shape is so perfectly matched to the task it's doing or a pattern, you know, like the branching pattern in nature, for example, um, is a linear pattern, very much so because it's moving energy from one place to another. So that's very different than a storage pattern. That's a different thing you're doing with energy. And it very much matches up what it's doing. So if we logically look at these things and also let our heart do a little bit of the work and not always have our head do all of the crunching constantly and listen to what the heart introduces to it, I think it makes a much richer experience for ourselves as designers, for creating things that we really enjoy creating, for creating something for the client that is actually more functional, more aesthetic, that covers all of the bases that that client really does need to speak to their audience, and then for the audience themselves. So they learn something. They get something. There's there's a reason for them to look at your image out of 10 million images um, instead of just passing it by and filtering it out, which is what happens with most of the messages that people see. And you talk about it as being information junk. Yes, exactly. Well, there's tons of that in the world, and that's why so much of it gets filtered out. I mean, there's just way too much of it, and the redundancy of it, the non-value of it, I mean, it doesn't give anything to the audience. Um, it's, It's actually designed to take something from the audience, and so a lot of those things get filtered um, right out of the audience's head because they they want something back, too, for their energy spent on looking at something and thinking about something. I believe it was in your TED Talk, but you talk about how you believe that we, humans, are being trained out of understanding nature and symbols via technology, yet we still understand nature and symbols Where do you think this is taking us? Oh, God. (laughs) It's really hard to say. Um, And we have to to model from nature in order to create things that work like they do. But I think we go off on these tangents that separate us further and further from nature. And what I I don't know where we're going to end up with this, Debbie, but what I do know is that you cannot disconnect from your source. Um, We're part of nature, and we have to have nature. Uh, We have to honor nature and take care of nature and pay attention to what nature has to teach us. Do you think that our culture has lost touch with the sort of archetypal principles that underlie numbers and shapes and nature? Absolutely. I think every kid, by the time they hit first grade, they should already have a very basic fluency with what shapes do, how they work, understand how to use symbolic language as well as they, you know, as well as stepping into using written language. You've included this quote by Galileo, and I'm going to read it for you. You write, you cannot understand the universe without learning first to understand the language in which it is written. 
It is written in the language of mathematics, and its letters are triangles and circles and other geometric forms. Without this language, humans cannot understand a single word of the universe. Without it, we wander in a dark labyrinth. Why did you decide to become a designer and not a mathematician? Oh, I was so bad in math in school. I did really well in algebra and did horribly in geometry, and my background was art. I had always drawn. So um, mathematics, the way it was presented to me in school, didn't have all this richness to it that I've discovered. And I, I really don't know that much about geometry. I find things like fractals fascinating. I think that the basic shapes and how they can be used to give certain clues to the information you're wanting to impart is really, really interesting. I think it's essential for designers to understand those things. But I don't know, math, mathematics, the way it's presented right now in this current age, is a little bit dry for me. You know, it's it doesn't have the richness. Mathematics that the Islamics did, that they covered like the Alhambra with, you know, those incredible tile tessellations um, that Escher went and studied when he launched off, when he's a very young man in his 20s. He closely studied all of the tile work that was done by um, the Islamic artists in the Alhambra and um, integrated that later into his really incredible math-based art, which no aid from a computer with that guy, and he did just astounding work. Also interesting that he was um, totally ambidextrous. He was equally adept with each hand, which is fairly rare, a little bit under 1%. Uh, geniuses and complete psychopaths, I believe, have that quality. Really? <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci and I Jeffrey he, Dahmer. <laughs> I think he was one, and I think um, Benjamin Flank Franklin was another, yeah. So you talk about how... 99% of the world's population are actually right-handed people. Is that correct, mm -hmm. that, that percentage? It's some high percentage, yeah. And, and you talk about the intent, the, the, the intent from nature that that is the case. How did the left-handed gene begin if nature is sort of moving us in a direction where we should all be right-handed people? Yeah, just to back up, it's 1% are ambidextrous, and then there's some other percent that is southpaw or left hand-driven. I don't remember what it was. And yes, the majority is right-handed. But, you know, when you consider that our symmetry is bilateral, that we've actually split and unfolded into two parts, what, what's interesting to me is why is the right hand the dominant one? I think they've seen some studies where there is this tendency towards rightness in things, which, um, you know, I, don't, I have no clue why that is. I mean, the scientists don't know why that is, but there is this tendency towards towards that side, a preference to it. And when you say rightness, you don't mean correctness. You mean the actual right side. I mean the actual right side, but I think it's been construed to mean correctness. And I've talked to many people who are elderly now who were trained out of using their left hand from the time they went into first first grade. They, you know, they were actually like hurt. They were like beaten out of or slapped on their hand and told never to use that hand for writing. Because, I don't know, this is devil's work or something. I'm not sure what that is. It seems as if the desire for the spiritual is deeply embedded in our DNA, or at least that's what I'm beginning to learn through reading your books. And it's represented that spirituality becomes represented in the meaning of numbers and the meaning of colors, symbols, everything that we've essentially created why do you think that is? It's, it seemed to me that there was a, a sort of larger order to nature 
that that didn't quite feel arbitrary. It seems so ordered. It seems so organized. It seems so logical. And I'm wondering if you have any sense about how and why that's happened. You know, I don't know. That's that's a pretty heavy uh, philosophical discussion there, Debbie. I know. (laughs) And I really wanted to have it with you. (laughs) Um, You've also stated that it's very easy to see why numbers are regarded primarily and often only as a counting tool. They provide a systematic language by which we can measure space and time, allowing us to count on Mm -hmm. future events. What do you think the designer's role in that is, or is there one, in determining how to create a predictable response to visual stimulus? Hmm. Well, I don't think of it as predicting a response other than the fact of of matching up the way I use it, because I do so much identity design, is it's really essential in my work that I match up patterns and shapes appropriately to the client. So they're being represented authentically to the audience and correctly. And that, I think, brings more value. And I think when you're lining up those kinds of things, it gives you a much better chance of actually connecting with the audience, which can translate into predictability as dollars or that kind of thing. But um, I know that if you don't have that, if you're repeating something just because it's a stylistic trend, or if you do something that really doesn't hit the mark of who the client is, your chances of connecting with the audience are just about nil. I was really struck in, I believe it was decoding design about how you reflected that banks don't use spirals in their logos. Or curves, and, usually. And, and you talk about a very specific reason why that is. Can you share that with our listeners? Yeah, that goes back to talking about, for instance, that shape of the hexagon, though you know, I'm not saying that banks use hexagons. But if you look at banking logos or tax logos like H&R Block or financial industries like Goldman Sachs, New York Stock Exchange, they all involve angles. They don't involve curves. And that's because they're dealing with a monetary system, which is all about precision and transparency. The point at which two lines connect uh, to make an angle is something that is extremely precise. So that's kind of a different way of thinking about transparency rather than opacity. That's sort of the way we typically think of transparency. But when you actually have defined corners. That's another type of transparency, that it is something that is set just so. So banks and financial institutions want to represent themselves as being extremely precise, being on top of the money, knowing which, you know, which each point is, where everything is located. So it makes complete sense that because they're dealing with your money, they want to give the impression that they are uh, very secure, they're very precise, they know where every penny is at every moment. So spirals is something that would maybe be used in a learning program or in a creative, some kind of a creative-based sort of a thing. That's a more appropriate shape for that. Circles are community-based. That's about all being included. A lot of times nonprofits love the circular shape. Now, I'm just talking about a basic template because in and of themselves, these shapes alone are fairly meaningless. I mean, other than just having a kind of a general meaning that translates to all people the same. 
For example, um, when people around the world were asked what a square represents to them, 100% out of all the different cultures, all the different languages, all the different experiences said it represents stability. So there's certain things that all human beings see the same. I know that we have these distinctions of cultures and governments and religions and yada yada, all of those things. But I really think there is far more that people have in common than they don't have. Before reading your books, I had the very distinct opinion that symbols, that iconography, even language are all constructs. But now that I've read your books, I really feel that they're embedded in this sort of mystery of nature that I had absolutely no idea about. Another um, piece of knowledge that I learned from, I believe it was decoding design, is that alphabets have, or or certainly the the Roman alphabet, has quite a lot of reflection symmetry to it. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what reflection symmetry is? And then, because you don't give away the answer in your book, what are the letters in the Roman alphabet that do not have reflection symmetry? I think you said there are seven of them, and I don't know which ones they are. Nine, yeah. That, That actually came out of one of my research books, The Ambidextrous Universe. One that does not have reflection symmetry is the S. It has rotational symmetry. Another is uh, – we're talking capital letters too. Right. Um, another is the R. Is this arbitrary? Is, is the notion of these nine specific letters not having reflection symmetry – is that something that has happened by accident, or do you think that there's a well, purpose there? I think there? you know. I think letter forms came from symbols that visually were representations taken from nature, from what we experience. Now, this is way pre-civilization, so you you have to think about human beings as having different priorities back then, and not thinking in the same way that we do now. You know, it's. It's really interesting that uh, they look at prehistoric cave paintings, for example, and they see these layers of very abstracted geometric sorts of markings. And then on top of that, there's another drawing that is beginning to look like something representational, something in three-dimensional space. And so archaeologists for a long time thought these were different levels of human beings that came along, uh, smaller cultures that came along and layered drawings on top of drawings. But they actually, when they dated them, carbon dating or whatever sort of dating they did, they found that these drawings were done pretty much at the same time. And it's, it's an idea of entoptics, the idea of how did art begin? How did human beings begin to understand that a three-dimensional thing could be put onto a two-dimensional space to represent it when it was out of mind? This is not something animals do. It's something very much attached to human beings. And one of the explanations, this is David... Uh, Williams Lewis, who is an anthropologist from South Africa, came up with the idea of entoptics, and he's been studying it for many, many years. He wrote a paper in the in the uh, 90s on this about these three phases that correspond with actually human beings going into a state of being aware of what's inside of their head. If you've ever done this as a kid, I did this as a kid, but you push on your eyeballs at night and you can see some of the you know, the optic nerve things that happen, the firings that happen inside of your uh, brain. And so that's natural for everyone. You take a shaman or someone who's visioning for their community, if they're having an issue, goes down into a cave where he's got no light, so he's got sensory deprivation, probably no food, um, just a little bit of water, is maybe chanting, 
and he goes into a state of being a beginning to take things that are in his head and they start to move outside of his head. So these fixing art into a, a place was thought of as being very important to have memory of what your visions are because the visions help the people. If you forget your visions, then it's the equivalent, the Koso Shoshone think, it's the equivalent of losing your connection with, with your consciousness. And so memory is an essential thing. So shamans would go in. They start with this is how um, the first phase of entoptics work. It, it also happens this way with psychedelic, uh, psychoactive drugs. They started doing experiments in the 50s and 60s, you know, LSD, that kind of thing. And they found that uh, these experiments went through exactly the same phases as the shaman goes through and as children go through, evolving through their ability to draw, where you first start with uh, cross hatchings and uh, little circles and waves, things like that. And then the mind does what the mind does in the second phase of entoptics, where the mind wants to make sense of what it's seen. So it begins to take its own experience, like looking, trying to see shapes in clouds is a great example of that. And you begin to make those shapes into forms. You begin to turn the cross hatchings and the abstractions into something that looks real to you. And then the third phase of um, the entoptics is full-out hallucination. It's the same as in a dream state when it seems to take a life of its own outside of you. So those are the three phases. And it's just the whole idea of where, when did human beings start doing art? Why did we start doing art? What was the value in it for us to do that is a really fascinating topic to discuss. And design is, of course, you know, it's it's like the oldest human profession. I mean, human beings, we think of things that we don't have yet, think of things that could be. We understand we have enough of uh, consciousness and an understanding to look at how things work in nature and understand how to apply it to maybe create something ourselves. It's a pretty amazing ability. And we're going to use it the way that we're going to use it. But um, it's we've got this opportunity to uh, make real in the world what we see uh, our world being. So, it's, you know, this is one of those really interesting conversations about consciousness and how do we use it. And design is like a step towards that, a major step towards that, because that's really the act of imagining, creating, visioning, and putting it into the world as a real thing. Maggie, the last thing I want to talk to you about is the thing I'm actually most excited to talk to you about, as you've written quite substantially on it, the Fibonacci sequence. You write how in 1202, an Italian nicknamed Fibonacci penned what has come to be known as the Fibonacci sequence. In this very simple sequence, each number is the sum of the preceding two. One, one, two, three, five, eight, thirteen, twenty-one, thirty-four, fifty-five, and so on. You call this a pi relationship. You've written that in and of itself, it's not remarkable until you consider that this sequence recurs with regularity in everything from the lengths of the finger bones, which curl into a spiral exactly like a nautilus, to the correlation of the distance between planets and their moons, to the proportionate division of human facial and bodily structure, to the spirals in the head of a sunflower. The sequence actually speaks to the reproductive process of most life forms. It produces patterns that are appealing in our eyes because it speaks to the continuity of our experience. It is precisely about the regeneration 
of us. Maggie, how did this happen? (laughs) Tell me how this happened. You need to explain to me how this exists. The head of a sunflower, the distance between moons. How is this possible? How is it possible? I mean... Yeah, that's that's where people start thinking about divine intelligence or um, just being able to design intelligently. And, oh, intelligent design. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I don't really see that with any sort of religious connotation. I see it as the mastery of nature, of being able to create things at multiple scales that function in the same kind of way so they can continue to sequence out into dimension or into whatever they need to do. That's why when you look at... Um, you, you've seen fractals, right, like the Mandelbrot, for yes. example, and spirals are a very big part of its shape. If you follow one of those, they call them seahorse tails. If you follow one of those spirals down, it infinitely continues on. I mean, this, and if you look at the sun moving through our galaxy, which I just got to see um, yesterday at uh, the Natural History Museum at the Planetarium, it was a great show, and you look at its planets that are spiraling, they're spiraling around it as it moves through our galaxy. And um, yeah, how, how did this occur? I mean, I don't have an answer for that, but um, I'm just a product of it like you. But I think it's wonderful. I think it's something that we need to pay attention to. There is so much beauty in the world when we take the time to look at it. So much wonder. The sequential lives that we pretty much live in today, the boxes we live in today, don't really replicate the real experience of what nature is. And I think it'd be wonderful, even if in our own minds, that we pay attention to replicating and paying attention to that more and create more beautiful design. The great thing about it is it applies to ourselves and our own lives personally. It's not just about design. It's not just about putting it out there. It's also about taking it in and incorporating it into yourself. Maggie, thank you so much for coming on Design Matters. You can find out more about Maggie McNabb and find a link to Maggie's wonderful TED Talk at McNabbDesign.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.